Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at France and the international ambitions and problems of its president, Emmanuel Macron. My guest is Sylvie Kaufmann, editorial director of the French newspaper Le Monde. So is Macron's France gaining international influence or losing it? There are few international leaders who are more ambitious or eloquent in laying out their vision of the world than Emmanuel Macron. In a recent speech at the United Nations, the French president argued that Europe should take care of its own security needs. Je le dis aussi avec beaucoup de clarté, nous ne déléguerons pas notre sécurité collective à d'autres puissances qu'à l'Europe. But in recent weeks, President Macron's also found himself facing terrorist atrocities at home. After the brutal murder of a schoolteacher, Samuel Paty, the French president addressed a shocked nation and vowed to fight back against radical Islamism. Ce soir, je n'aurai pas de mots pour évoquer la lutte contre l'islamisme politique, radical, qui mène jusqu'au terrorisme. Les mots... But President Macron's description of Islam as a religion in crisis sparked a backlash in some parts of the Muslim world. President Erdogan of Turkey with whom the French president has clashed frequently, accused Macron of Islamophobia and questioned the French president's mental health, prompting France to withdraw its ambassador to Turkey. But in other respects, President Macron has reason to feel satisfied with the direction of world affairs. Like many European leaders, he'll be relieved by the defeat of Donald Trump. But the arrival of a more friendly American president has not persuaded Mr. Macron to let go of his own plan for Europe to become more independent of the United States. On the contrary, as Sylvie Kaufmann explained to me from Paris, President Macron feels that his idea of European sovereignty is now gathering support. Well, actually, it is a concept he's been pushing around for the past three years. If you remember this long speech at the Sorbonne in September 2017 was very much about European sovereignty and strategic autonomy. And for much of those past three years, he may have had a sense that he was preaching in the wilderness, but he seems to be now convinced that he's made real inroads on defense, on technology, on public health, even now on fiscal and economic integration. And that's very much thanks to the pandemic, in fact, with this massive recovery plan that the European Union agreed on in July and which is now being pushed through the different stages of votes and, and ratifications. You know, this is for him and probably for most European leaders a giant step forward. So he has a sense now that Europe has woken up, as he says. Mm. Is it, in a way, a very traditional French idea? I mean, it's kind of modern goalism, isn't it? That Europe should stand on its own two feet, not be too reliant on the United States, albeit in a new international environment. Yes, of course, you may say it's in the it's long-standing French tradition, but I think the The European environment is different. I mean, the European Union, of course, is much bigger. It's difficult to say this to a British (laughs) colleague, but, you know, European Union is 27 member states now, and it's a much more complicated entity than it was under the goal, but it's also 
uh, with bigger potential. So the world environment is also very, very different. And Macron sees it as, you know, the return of great power competition and this multipolar world where Europe finally has to be its own geopolitical entity cooperating with the United States, of course, but independent, that's the word he uses, aligned but not aligned, as the saying goes. So this is very much his view of the world now and of the place that the European Union has to occupy in this uh, very complex and dangerous world, you know, different from the United States, different from China. You said that he thinks that COVID-19 in a funny way has given him a breakthrough. I suppose the most important thing is this change of heart in Germany, because it seems to me that when he came in and he made all these big speeches, it was all premised on the idea of getting the Franco-German partnership going again. And for a long time, it didn't look like the Germans were really interested in more fiscal integration and so on. And that seems to have changed. Is that the big thing, really? Yes, you're right. I mean, not only were the Germans not interested, I think they were pretty reluctant to this idea. And in Paris, there is a sense that Angela Merkel was slowly coming to this realization that more fiscal integration was inevitable in a way. But what really made her move was the pandemic. Yes, because the realization after two or three months of this pandemic that the economic devastation was so deep that if so many countries' economies were at risk, this would also be a huge danger for the German economy, even though at that stage, you know, in late spring, Germany seemed to be doing much better than the other uh, European countries in terms of the economic consequences of the pandemic. So again, I'm describing this from Paris, which may be a reality which is seen differently from Berlin. But the French leadership at the moment is quite confident that with Merkel, they've really made headways and that she very much sees eye to eye on European integration with Macron. Now, of course, the big question mark is what happens when Angela Merkel leaves next autumn. And there's always also this sense in Paris that the Franco-German tandem needs to be very firmly established by then to resist what will be a huge political change, not only in Germany, but also for the rest of the European Union. And you uh, alluded gently to Brexit earlier, but we're obviously reaching <laughs> a fairly crucial phase with the possibility still that a deal won't be made. And certainly in London, the view is that France is probably the toughest of the Europeans. How's it viewed in Paris? I mean, do they think there's going to be a deal? And how anxious are they about the consequences of a no deal? You know, there's not so much talk about Brexit at the moment in Paris. Of course, there you know, there are so many other issues to worry about. We have COVID-19 peaking at the moment, you know, the second wave. We've had all those terrorist attacks. We have the economy sinking. So Brexit is not the first problem on French people's mind at the moment. It is an issue which is seen as being in the safe hands of Michel Barnier, in fact, and of the European Commission. It's Brussels business, I would say, except maybe for one problem which is directly affecting the French, which is the fisheries. 
But, you know, no deal or bad deal. I think there is a sense that, you know, we're entering this really tough phase where there's going to be a lot of tension and, you know, a lot of maneuvering on both sides, but that eventually it is in everyone's interest to have a deal and that it will be managed. You know, there's no animosity or resentment. There's not much tension, I would say, in France at the moment on this issue. Mm. I mean, oddly enough, there, there isn't, doesn't seem to be much tension in Britain either, but perhaps there should be, but, uh, <laughs> but, but there isn't. Um, I think everyone's so bored of it by now that uh, they're sort of assuming it's over, even though it isn't. But you also made the point that there are these bigger issues weighing on the French, and in particular a resurgence of terrorist attacks because we can't travel, I don't really have a feeling for how shaken France is by this, you know, particularly the horrible beheading of Samuel Paty and then the, the subsequent killings. I mean, has that changed the mood in France? I wouldn't say it has changed the mood because the mood was always there. It's probably not a coincidence, of course, that the beheading of Samuel Paty, the teacher, and then the attack on the church in, in Nice happened after the trial of the accomplices of Charlie Hebdo massacre opened in Paris. And also we just had the fifth anniversary of November 13 attacks in 2015 at the Bataclan and the cafes and Stade de France. So I think the figure is about 250, 260 people have been killed in France in terrorist attacks over the past six years, which is really a lot. So... Yes, it did shake people, but, you know, I think it's something now Europeans are learning to live with. There's not a feeling in France that we are isolated in this, also because we had those attacks following closely in Austria. It is very much seen as a European problem as well, not only a French problem. As you say, there's a sense of European solidarity with France, but France was criticised quite harshly and there was a backlash in parts of the Muslim world against the remarks that uh, President Macron made after the terrorism. Has that calmed down and how are people thinking about that row with elements of the Muslim world? It is a concern. Yes, it is a big concern, this backlash in the Muslim world, because of potential consequences both abroad on French citizens and French companies, and also domestically, as this backlash may undermine national cohesion and relations with the Muslim community. Though if you look at it, French civil society has been quite resilient. I mean, both Muslim and non-Muslim society after the latest terrorist attacks. But I have to say it is a problem, yes, this inability of the French to make their case abroad about laïcité, this particular French version of secularism. It's something which is puzzling for a lot of French people. And it's definitely a huge concern to Emmanuel Macron. He took an hour to give an interview to Al Jazeera. He also <laughs> he took the time to call the New York Times media columnist to put the record straight on what he thinks is a very negative coverage from the media in America and in the United Kingdom. Yeah, he even wrote to the FT rather along that. Exactly, yeah. I think he's a bit overdoing it on the, what we call the Anglo-Saxon media. But in the Muslim world, it is definitely a concern. And I think people think it should be pointed out now that France's idea of freedom of speech shouldn't focus only on the Charlie Hebdo caricature. It's, it's Of course, it is much, much uh, bigger than that. Also, the fact that, you know, when Macron spoke about the crisis within Islam, 
So the reaction in the Muslim world that it is not for a French president or for a non-Muslim leader to make a diagnosis on a religion. So yes, there is discussion, but as you said, it it has also calmed down, yes. But I suppose the background is that this aspect of relations with the Muslim world also has a real-world manifestation in that France is involved in a counterinsurgency in Mali, which has been going on for some seven years now. Is there a concern that it's too inconclusive, that France is getting bogged down in a war? Yes, of course, it is a concern, maybe more for the government than for the general public, who doesn't seem too worried about this, though, you know, if you think of it, there are now more than 5,000 troops in Mali and in Sahel, and they've been there, as you said, for seven years. And there's very little debate about this involvement in, in France. Now, yes, it could be turning into quagmire. There's a real danger of those endless, unwinnable wars. French officials hate when we make the comparison with Afghanistan. But yes, we are faced, I think, with a similar situation of not being able to solve the conflict which dragged you to that area. But the awareness at the same time that if you were not there at all or if you withdrew completely, the situation could be worse. So, uh, (laughs) you know, what is the end game? It's very difficult to say. And the French keep saying that they have now more European support, more European countries are joining the French forces. I think the British are also helping there. And they make the case that they are fighting a jihadi force there and that they are doing it for the rest of Europe, not only for France. The other sort of semi-confrontation that France seems to be having at the moment, not military as yet, is with Turkey, where um, the French have been much more forward in opposing Turkish ambitions in the eastern Mediterranean, and I believe even dispatched military forces there as a kind of warning. Why is the relationship between France and Turkey in particular so bad? There are probably several reasons. Of course, part of the blame lies on Recep Tayyip Erdogan himself and this expansionist policy. If you consider that Turkey is being active now on five or six military theatres altogether, from Syria to Libya to the Caucasus, Iraq and You even had the Turkish president paying a visit to North Cyprus recently. So that's one part of the problem. Why is France involved? I think because France is also involved in some of those areas, like Syria, where it was part of an international coalition. If you remember this much-commented interview of uh, Emmanuel Macron to The Economist last year, where he said that NATO was brain dead, that was because of Turkey. That was because of Turkish troops leaving this that area in Syria without informing its NATO partners. So that goes some way back. And there may also be domestic dimensions behind the scenes. Turkey is suspected of agitating part of the French Muslim community through its network of imams. You know, there are about 150 Turkish imams in French mosques. So that's probably another reason why Franco-Turkish relation is so tense. Now, Emmanuel Macron claims that he is also doing 
the hard work for Europe. For instance, on Eastern Mediterranean, it was Cyprus and Greece, which were targeted, and they are EU partners, and that France was there with its navy in the area, so it went to support the Greek and Cyprus positions. And Macron claims that now, finally, he's rallied most of uh, Europeans behind him. That is his feeling, is it? Because I mean, I had the sense that once again, this was a, an issue where France felt a bit kind of misunderstood. When I was in Berlin, they were saying, you know, well, you know, we can't really take a side in this dispute between Greece and Turkey. And some German politicians were saying France has gone too far. Yeah, I mean, France was quite isolated at the beginning, I think, on this Eastern Mediterranean issue. When France looked for support in NATO, it found like eight or nine partners to support it. And that's not uh, an awful lot. Berlin is, of course, more cautious on the issue of Turkey because there are, I think, two or three million Turkish people living in Germany. So it's a different situation from France. But there is a sense that over the past few months, there is a more unitary position within the European Union about this. So overall, perhaps with the big exception of this row with parts of the Muslim world, the impression I get is that France feels, or President Macron feels, that the world is slightly moving in his direction on a range of issues, whether it's European sovereignty or uh, the Eastern Mediterranean or, as most importantly, European integration and, indeed, the handling of Brexit. How has the big event, the defeat of Donald Trump, affected the way that France is going to approach the world in the next couple of years? I mean, Macron did his best to have a decent relationship with Trump, but presumably the French are relieved that Trump is going and that Biden is coming in? Uh, I think, yes, like everybody else in Europe, the French are relieved <laughs> to see Trump uh, gone once he finally decides to go. Now, you're right, Macron did try his best to have a good relationship with Trump. You know, he tried to charm him. They spoke frequently, even Trump called uh, Macron after the terrorist attacks in Nice for a short call, but to show solidarity. So they were on speaking terms, but Macron diplomatically didn't get anything out of this relationship. You know, he tried hard early in his term to have the US staying in the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and he failed. Of course, the US left the Paris Accord on Climate Change. You know, it failed on almost every aspect, except probably on the counterterrorism issue where the American military and the French military kept working together quite well. But that was probably the only positive result of this Trump-Macron relationship. Now, with Biden, of course, it will be much more pleasant and easier. There is a lot of speculation on whether the Biden administration will have a mollifying effect, if you want, on this European integration trend. Because it'll seem less urgent. Yes, because, you know, Trump has had a kind of catalyst effect on the European Union. And of course, now with a more amicable administration in Washington and more pro-European, definitely, or at least not anti-European as Trump was, you know, there might be the temptation from some European countries of, you know, relaxing and saying, okay, now we're going back to the good old days. But you know, Trump was not the only factor in this trend. As I said, the pandemic was a big factor. 
Brexit, unfortunately, may have been a factor also. China, of course, is also another factor. You know, this new challenging world environment was also a factor in getting the Europeans closer together. And the Biden administration may not see this as a bad thing. There is also the sense here that the Biden administration will have so many challenges to tackle and will be so busy with China that maybe, you know, having the Europeans taking care of their own neighborhood may be quite helpful, actually. That was Sylvie Kaufman in Paris, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll tackle another subject, probably the civil war that seems to be breaking out in Ethiopia. You'll be able to find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Listener.